Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, everyone. Nate Hale here. That's right. I'm back. Before we get started, I wanted to take a moment to thank a few people during this really difficult time in my life. First off, I can't thank my friends Nina Instead and Rob Christofferson enough for stepping in and hosting the show recently while I worked on getting my voice back. As you can hear, I'm still not 100%, but I'm getting better all the time, and I just couldn't stand to stay away any longer. Besides Nina and Rob, I really need to thank each and every one of you, my faithful listeners, who took the time to email me, send me tweets, follow me on Patreon, and reach out in so many other ways to wish me well. It's really helping with my recovery and truly demonstrates what amazing people you all are. All your love and support really means the world to me. So, I'm here to give you something in return. A brand new story, read by me, from the darkest pages of history. And without further ado, on with the show. There's a little cafe at 36 Blythe Road in London's West Kensington that doesn't look particularly unusual today. But back in 1900, this address was the site of an actual battle between magicians. And not just any magicians either. This was a fight between none other than William Butler Yeats, one of the foremost poets of all time, and Aleister Crowley, perhaps the most infamous occult practitioner in history. As it turns out, both men were members of a mystical secret society called the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn which was co-founded by three men, William Robert Woodman, William Wynne Westcott, and Samuel Liddell Mathers, back in the late 19th century. The late 1880s were sometimes known as the golden age of fraternalism. It was a time when millions of people in Europe and the United States began looking for answers to life's most difficult questions, and often did so by joining secret societies. There were over five and a half million members in the U.S. alone. More than 20% of American men were members of some secret fraternal order. This just so happened to coincide with the Industrial Revolution, which suddenly afforded a lot of people, especially the wealthy elite, a lot more free time to spend focusing on their spirituality. It was also a time in history that was seen as a great turning away from Christianity, as more and more people began looking elsewhere for answers from the great beyond. All three founders of the Golden Dawn were Freemasons, so it should come as no shock to anyone that they claimed to have begun the order after deciphering an ancient text that unlocked the secrets of the universe. And that coincidentally, many of those secrets were oddly similar to a lot of Masonic rituals. 
As a result, Woodman, Westcott, and Mathers modeled the tenets of the Golden Dawn out of a mixture of Freemasonry, Christian mysticism, theosophy, the Jewish Kabbalah, and ancient Egyptian beliefs. All things they just so happened to be well-versed in. Back in the late 19th century, there were many secret societies, each with their own unique rules and rituals. The Freemasons and the Rosicrucians were two of the largest such groups, but in a relatively short period, the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn managed to grow highly popular among Londoners, in part because of how open they were with their membership. They allowed people to join from all strata of society, and in particular took the rather radical step for the era to allow women to join. At that time, most such secret societies were strictly boys-only clubs. But Samuel Mathers, one of the three founders of the Golden Dawn, became instrumental in shaping the rules governing the society. He married a woman named Mina Bergson, who would go on to change her name to Moina Mathers. And it was she who encouraged him to allow women into the order, even as she became part of the Golden Dawn's elite inner circle. Other rumored members of the Golden Dawn read like a who's who of some of the most influential members of British society. This included Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, creator of Sherlock Holmes, Bram Stoker, the creator of Dracula, Florence Farr, a famous London stage actress, Sarah Allgood, another well-known actress who decades later appeared in several films, and legendary horror writers Algernon Blackwood and Arthur Machen, just to name a few. For the first couple of years, the Golden Dawn operated as one cohesive group known as the First Order. But by the 1890s, their membership in London had swelled to hundreds of members, which caused the group's leaders to divide themselves up into a First Order and a Second Order. Members of the Second Order were considered to be a higher rank than those of the First Order, having completed the original course of magical studies and graduated to a higher spiritual state of being. The Second Order was formally established under the name the Oreo, Rosea, Robea, et Aurea Crucis, or the Order of the Red Rose and the Golden Cross. Only high-ranking members of the Second Order were able to communicate with the Golden Dawn's secretive Third Order. The Third Order was a group of powerful celestial beings known as the Ascended Masters, or the Secret Chiefs, who only existed on the so-called Astral Plane. Since only elite members of the Second Order were able to communicate with these secret chiefs, this also meant their word was law, and they could not be questioned by other lower-ranking members of the Golden Dawn. Several temples were established throughout London that were a hodgepodge of Egyptian, Masonic, and other influences. One feature of particular note is that inside the temple built at 36 Blythe Road stood a shrine to another legendary figure in the occult community named Christian Rosenkreutz. According to popular legend, Rosenkreutz was a doctor who learned a vast wealth of esoteric magical wisdom while on a pilgrimage to the Middle East, eventually founding what became known as the Rosicrucian Order. At the center of the shrine at 36 Blythe Road was a coffin dedicated to Rosenkreutz, which it was believed a magical adept could lay inside and use as a sort of telephone booth with a direct line to the spirit realm. Right around the end of the 19th century, an internal power struggle began brewing within the Order of the Golden Dawn, much of which came to circle around one of their newest initiates, an ambitious young magician named Alistair Crowley. 
William Butler Yates was the head of the Blythe Road Temple at that time, and he, like a lot of members of the Golden Dawn, didn't like how quickly Crowley had risen through the ranks, and in particular his close relationship with the Order's remaining founder, Samuel Liddell Mathers. In 1891, William Woodman died, leaving Westcott and Mathers in charge. But after Woodman's death, the two remaining founders began to squabble. Mathers, in particular, grew increasingly erratic in his behavior, and at the same time became even stricter in enforcing the Golden Dawn's rules, which caused a lot of lower-ranking members to quit out of frustration. Then in 1896, Westcott abruptly cut all ties to the Golden Dawn. After an incident in which a number of secret Golden Dawn files were discovered in a handsome cab that directly tied Westcott to the secret society. When the Crown caught wind of Westcott's unseemly occult activities, they gave him the choice to either sever ties with the Golden Dawn or lose his job as a London coroner. For years after, Westcott insisted that he never would have been so careless as to leave a stack of confidential papers in a cab. He fully believed that none of this had been an accident and that Mathers had set him up so that he could seize control of the organization. But after Mathers became solely in charge, the Golden Dawn began to go into decline. There were bleeding members which hurt not only the group's finances, but Mathers' pocketbook as well. He would soon leave London because he could no longer afford to live there. And he went to Paris to try to establish a new chapter of the Golden Dawn. By 1899, there was growing dissension among the group's remaining ranks. The adepts of both the Isis and Amun-Ra temples were growing dissatisfied with Mathers' leadership, as was William Butler Yeats. Crowley asked that he be allowed to join the second rank of the order, but was denied admission by several members who disapproved of his leftist views and bisexuality. This infuriated Crowley, who went straight to his friend Mathers and demanded he be allowed to join the second order. Mathers crowned Crowley with the title Adeptus Exemptus, the highest rank of the Second Order. This enraged members of the London chapter, and they demanded an explanation why Crowley should be granted such promotion. Mathers declined to answer and instead dismissed the chapter as being part of the Golden Dawn. In response, members of the London chapter held an emergency meeting and voted to remove Mathers as their leader, expelling him from the Order. This would all lead to what's become known as the Battle of Blythe Road. Around this time, Aleister Crowley began showing up at the temple on Blythe Road and asserting his authority. He began making it clear to everyone that he had every intention of seizing control of the temple. At one point, he even showed up and changed the locks, after which Yates went through and changed them again. Yates despised Crowley and after the lock-changing incident, he knew full well that Crowley would be back soon to start more trouble. So Yates sought out the assistance of a couple of professional pugilists to hang around the temple with him and act as security. Then on April 19, 1900, while Yates was heading a meeting at the temple, Crowley showed up alongside his mistress. Crowley made quite a spectacle. He was decked out in a kilt, a large black Osiris mask, and brandishing a Scottish dagger called a dirk. He and his mistress burst into the temple, casting spells and threatening everyone with the dagger. A scuffle ensued, during which Yates and the other group members managed to shove Crowley down the stairs. 
The police soon arrived, and eventually the dispute would end up in court. Crowley unsuccessfully argued that he should be the one in charge of the Blythe Road Temple, but being as the other members of the London chapter paid the rent, Crowley lost. In further retaliation, Crowley went on to publish several texts revealing many of the Golden Dawn's secrets. After this, according to legend, Mathers and Yates performed a magic ritual to summon a psychic vampire to attack Crowley. Then Crowley responded by summoning an army of demons to attack Mathers. The Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn hung around for a few more years, but constant infighting eventually caused them to split apart into several smaller groups. One of these groups, called the Alpha et Omega, was headed by Mathers himself. And it's from this new secret society that arises a truly bizarre mystery. In 1929, one of the members of the Alpha et Omega was found dead on the Scottish island of Iona in what appeared to be some sort of occult ritual. The woman's nude body was found draped in a black cloak, and she was laid out on a rough carving of a cross in the earth. To this day, there are those who believe the woman was killed by supernatural forces. But whatever the truth may be, Netta Fornario's death remains a mystery nearly a century later. I'm Nate Hale, and I'm here to kick cancer's ass and chew bubblegum, and I'm all out of bubblegum. And this is The Conspirators. The tiny island of Iona lies off the western coast of Scotland. It's only three miles across at its widest point, and back in the earliest part of the 20th century, there were no roads, no electricity, and no telephone service. Back in the year 563, a monk named St. Columba founded a highly important monastery on the island. This monastery became instrumental in teaching Celtic traditions, and it's often been said that the legendary illuminated manuscript, the Book of Kells, may have been written there. One other legend claims that St. Columba discovered a fairy hill on Iona, and it was on that spot that the veil between the natural world and the spirit world was at its thinnest. It's believed that this is what drew a 33-year-old woman named Netta Frenaria to Iona. She became interested in the island after reading a book by William Sharp, describing the fairies that live there. According to renowned occultist Dion Fortune, Netta planned on traveling to Iona to do some deep healing and to study the green ray elementals, a.k.a. fairies. But also, according to Fortune, Netta got herself too deep into mystical forces she had no control of, and it ultimately cost the woman her life. Netta Fornario was born in Cairo, Egypt in 1897. After her mother died prematurely the following year, Netta was sent to London to live with her maternal grandfather, Thomas Pratt Ling. Growing up in London society, Netta became acquainted with the many occult secret societies that had sprung up throughout the Victorian era and carried on into the early 20th century. She eventually went on to become a member of Alpha et Omega, the offshoot of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn founded by Samuel Mathers. Throughout her life, Netta lived a sort of bohemian, free-spirited lifestyle. She wore her hair in two long braids and often dressed in mismatched clothing that was deliberately selected to be out of style. 
She was also known to wear large amounts of silver jewelry, which would play heavily into the strange circumstances surrounding her death later on. In the late summer of 1929, Netta began telling her friends and family she planned on packing up and spending some time on Iona, and that they shouldn't expect her back for a while. By the time Netta arrived on Iona that autumn, most of the summer visitors had already packed up and returned to the mainland. She found lodgings with a local landlady named Mrs. McRae. Netta arrived with enough luggage and small furniture that it was clear she planned on staying a while. Curiously, she told the McRae she arrived on the island in the company of a female friend. But neither the McRae's nor anyone else ever claimed to have laid eyes on this mysterious friend. The McRae's came to think Netta was a bit of an oddball, but she was harmless enough. And soon, Mrs. McRae struck up a casual friendship with her. At one point, Netta confided in Mrs. McRae that she thought she had been reincarnated and that she had lived on Iona in a past life. Netta spent her days writing things down on paper that she never shared with Mrs. McRae or anyone else. She usually kept two oil lamps burning in her room all night, and most days she wouldn't wake up until 11 or 12. After that, she'd get up and wander the island. Many of Netta's days were spent hanging out around the alleged fairy hill discovered by St. Columba. There she would spend hours in a meditative trance. She'd often return late in the afternoon to the McRae's home and ramble on about the great spiritual knowledge she had learned during her meditations. Over time, the McRae's began to wonder if Netta might be mentally ill. Mrs. McRae grew worried enough that she considered summoning a doctor, but Netta insisted she was fine. Then one day in November, Netta woke up before dawn and scared the hell out of the McRae's when she began frantically telling everyone she needed to get off the island immediately. She insisted there was someone out to get her. But this wasn't any physical being. Rather, it was someone on the astral plane who had begun to torment her. She rambled incoherently about being attacked in the spiritual realm and about how this mysterious being kept telling her the most dreadful things. What was equally as concerning to Mrs. McRae was not only the story Netta was telling her, but also her appearance. Netta looked terrible. Her skin was drained of color, and her hair stood out in tangled knots, and perhaps most oddly of all, all of Netta's silver jewelry had turned black. The McRae's tried their best to calm Netta down, but they were forced to break the news to her. There was no way she was getting off the island that day because it was the Sabbath. No boats were due to come or go from the island that day. She would simply have to wait it out for another couple days till a boat returned. Netta was practically sobbing that she couldn't stay there another minute. Her very life depended on it. The McRae's tried to comfort Netta, but the young woman refused to listen to reason. She soon burst out of the house and went and sat by the dock for several hours, waiting for a boat that never arrived. Eventually, she finally gave up and came back inside. When she returned, she was calmer, but she still didn't seem well. According to Mrs. McRae, Netta appeared resigned to her fate. She told the landlady that she had changed her mind about going home and apologized for her earlier behavior. She then went up to her room, and that was the last time Mrs. McRae, or anyone else, saw Netta Fornario alive. The following morning, when Netta Fornario didn't come down from her room, Mrs. McRae went up to check on her. But Netta wasn't in her room, and it appeared her bed hadn't been slept in. 
Also, the fireplace was filled with the charred scraps of some papers that Netta must have burned in there. All the rest of Netta's belongings, including her typewriter and luggage, were still right where she left them. At first, Mrs. McRae hoped Netta was just out on one of her daily walks. But after a while, when Netta didn't return, she grew more concerned. She organized a search party to go looking for the woman. But it was already late in the day by that point, and even though the island was relatively tiny, the train was rocky and there were plenty of places a person could hide. By nightfall, the search party had to call things off. They planned on resuming their search for Netta in the morning. The following day, the villagers used dogs to try to track Netta's scent. The dogs dragged them to Fairy Hill, and that's where they discovered a grisly scene. Netta Frenario's body lay on the cold, hard ground next to the fairy mound. Her mouth was wide open, and her face was frozen in terror. She was naked except for a black cloak with some sort of mystical insignia embroidered on it. Her arms and legs were outstretched. Her legs and feet were covered in bloody gashes, as if she'd been running from something. And all along her torso were dozens of tiny scratches. She had a silver cross around her neck that had turned black just like all the other silver jewelry Mrs. McRae had noticed the day before. Near one of her outstretched hands lay a steel knife. Some people suggested that the gashes on her legs were where she had cut herself with the knife, although there was no evidence of this any more than there was of anything else. Beneath Netta's body, someone, possibly Netta herself, had carved a large cross into the hard earth. The coroner's report could not determine a time of death. The closest the coroner could determine was that Netta had died sometime between the 17th and the 19th of November. The coroner ultimately listed Netta's cause of death as exposure, mostly because there was no other obvious evidence of foul play. She was buried in a simple grave on the island. When Netta died, she left behind a bank account and with what would have amounted to about 25,000 pounds in today's money. Investigators also later reported they found a number of letters of, quote, strange character among her possessions. Although what specifically these letters said has never been released to the public. Although murder was ruled out by police, some villagers did say they saw a mysterious man in a black cloak on the island the day she went missing. Although this man was never identified either. And this is where things may have ended. Just another bizarre mystery with no clear answer. But then a year later, a famous occultist named Dion Fortune came forward with the startling claim that she knew exactly what happened to Netta Frenario, and in particular, who killed her. But the story she had to tell was pretty astonishing, to say the least. Because according to Fortune, Netta Frenario wasn't killed by any earthly murderer. No, she was attacked and killed by supernatural forces. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Before we continue, I want to tell you about this episode's sponsor, Audible. As you probably know, I do a lot of research to make this show. 
which means I read a lot of books, especially history books, looking for these strange stories from the darkest corners of the past. But there are only so many hours in the day, which makes Audible an invaluable resource when I'm doing research. Audible is the leading provider of spoken word entertainment all in one place. Audible has proven to be a fantastic resource with a huge library of audiobooks on history, unsolved mysteries, and true crime that I dig into daily in order to find new material that I share with you. I like to throw on my headphones and listen to Audible while I'm working, when I'm out walking, or doing chores around the house. Not only does Audible have thousands of audiobooks at my fingertips, but with their popular Plus catalog, you can find an enormous collection of podcasts, guided fitness and meditation, original entertainment, audio lectures, and even sleep tracks to help you unwind at the end of a busy day. Recently, I was listening to The Unidentified by Colin Dickey, which is a terrific book about the history of people witnessing unexplained phenomena. He also wrote another really great book about hauntings I highly recommend called Ghostland. Audible is a great way to connect to a vast world of entertainment and knowledge. With an Audible membership, you can download titles and listen offline, anytime, anywhere. The Audible app is free and can be installed on all your smartphones and tablets. You can even listen across devices without losing your spot. Each month as an Audible member, you will get one credit good for any title in their massive premium library. Anything you want from creepy history to the latest bestseller to celebrity memoirs, you name it. It's yours to keep forever. With everything you love all in one app, Audible is going to become your playlist for life. Right now, Conspirators listeners can try Audible free for 30 days just by signing up with our exclusive offer code. All you need to do to sign up is visit audible.com slash conspirators or text conspirators to 500-500. It's that easy. So what are you waiting for? Try Audible for free for 30 days and see if you like it as much as I do. Visit audible.com slash conspirators or text conspirators to 500-500. And now, back to the show. Throughout her life, Dion Fortune was highly regarded throughout the occult community. She published several books on the supernatural, and she even went on to lead her own occult group. She was born Violet May Firth in December 1890 to an upper-middle-class family from North Wales. She claimed to have begun having psychic visions in her teens. She spent her early years writing poetry, studying horticulture, and then later psychology at the University of London where she spent some time working as a psychotherapist. By the time of the First World War, Fortune had taken an interest in the Theosophical Society, the occult group started by Helena Blavatsky. From there, she joined another occult lodge led by Theodore Moriarty, and after that, Alpha et Omega. According to Fortune, Netta Frenario's death all led back to Alpha et Omega, and to some degree, even further back to the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. After Samuel Mathers died during the 1918 influenza outbreak, his wife Moyna Mathers took over running the group. The following year, Fortune joined Alpha Ed Omega, only to realize that the group was floundering. Fortune didn't think they were really learning much magic under Samuel Mathers' leadership. Alpha Ed Omega members were more or less left to gain mystical insight on their own. Fortune said she went to Moyna and suggested they refocus the group's direction and take a more active role in training members in the mystical arts. 
After all, it was Samuel himself who had once claimed they were all engaged in an ongoing struggle between the forces of good and evil, and that the world would need as many good magicians as they could train if they were going to win. At first, Moyna liked a lot of what Fortune proposed. Membership actually began to grow after that point, and for a time it seemed like Alpha at Omega was on the right track once again. But over the following year, Fortune's influence in the group began to overshadow Moyna's. She began doing lectures on clairvoyance and publishing several well-regarded books on the occult. This caused Moyna to become jealous, and she expelled Fortune from the group. In response, Fortune went on to write several tell-all articles, talking about the sort of exploitation she witnessed among some secret societies. She didn't name Alpha and Omega specifically, but it wasn't hard to connect the dots. After leaving Alpha and Omega, Fortune started her own occult society called the Fraternity of the Inner Light. It was in this group that Fortune taught her followers how to meditate and how to travel spiritually to the astral plane. Normally, the astral plane was a sort of safe space for the soul. It was here that Fortune herself claimed to be able to speak to the same ascended masters that the Second Order of the Golden Dawn was said to be in direct contact with. But over time, Fortune couldn't shake the feeling that something was off whenever she entered her own corner of the astral plane. Things grew even more troubling over time when Fortune said she began to randomly jump into the astral plane at all hours. This wasn't supposed to happen. Even worse, there were times where she was in the astral plane, only she didn't feel safe. She felt an overwhelming sense of menace all around her, and sometimes she claimed to see the faces of demons leering at her. Back on Earth, Inner Light members began complaining they were seeing black cats everywhere. These weren't your usual cats, either. These were foul-smelling creatures, and Fortune was certain they were some sort of demonic entities. Eventually, Fortune conducted a cleansing ritual to rid themselves of the cats. But even after that, things still weren't right. As the date grew closer to the spring equinox, things continued to make Fortune feel uneasy. The equinox was thought to be one of the times of year when the veil between the spirit realm and the physical realm was at its thinnest. Normally, Fortune loved this time because it was when she felt closest to her spiritual essence. But this year, Fortune was scared and she began to shy away from entering the astral plane. But eventually, she worked up her courage and decided to face matters head on. She was going to enter the astral plane one more time. Only this time she planned to have a group of onlookers around her to stand watch over her physical body. But as soon as Fortune entered the astral plane, she was attacked by a cloaked figure. Only this time, Fortune recognized her attacker. It was Moina Mathers. The two women battled each other on the astral plane, only Moina got the upper hand. And she drove Fortune's spirit back out into the physical world. When Fortune awoke from her trance, she realized the entire room she was in was a wreck, and her body was lying in a different part of the room than where she'd been originally. But now that Fortune knew who her enemy was, she decided she was going to reclaim her place in the astral realm. She went into another meditative state, and this time when she met Moyna Mathers in the astral plane, the two women fought again. Only this time Fortune prevailed. In Fortune's writing, she's not entirely clear on exactly what happened during this battle, but I personally like to think of the movie Doctor Strange and just assume it was something like that. When Dion Fortune returned to her body, she was exhausted. 
She also noticed her body was covered in dozens of tiny scratches. This is what later led her to connect this incident with the death of Netta Fornario. Fortune thought perhaps Moina Mathers was responsible for Netta's death, and that the woman was actually killed after entering the astral plane out there in the ferry mound. One big problem with this theory, though, is that Moina Mathers actually died in July 1928, a year before Netta Fornario was found dead. But if we are to believe any of this story about Netta Fornario being killed after entering the astral plane, it's probably not that much more of a stretch to imagine Moina Mathers committing the murder from beyond the grave. But, I know, this is all a lot to swallow. But you do have to admit, it does make for a good story nonetheless. There are others who suggest some more earthly explanations for Netta Fornario's death, one of which ties directly into a ritual started by the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, known as the Dark Knight of the Soul. This was a cleansing ritual in which the individual was supposed to reckon with their deepest fears. During this ritual, the magician was supposed to burn sulfur in order to help rid the soul of all doubts and fears. One interesting thing of note about burning sulfur, though, is that the fumes can actually tarnish silver. It's been speculated that perhaps Netta Fornario performed this dark night of the soul ritual in her room, and that the burning of the sulfur is what caused her silver jewelry to turn black. The problem with burning sulfur in a small space, though, is that the sulfur dioxide fumes are also highly toxic. It's possible Netta may have become disoriented from breathing in the fumes and ran naked out into the night to the fairy hill where she succumbed to the elements. One other alternate explanation for Netta's strange behavior, that she may have been either diabetic or hypoglycemic. Some stories have suggested Netta wasn't exactly the picture of health even when she first set foot on the island. There are some reports that say that on some days her morning strolls never took her more than a couple hundred yards down to the beach before she'd return to the McRae's home exhausted. After which she would retire to her room with a glass of orange juice. If Netta was diabetic, her body could have gone into a state known as ketoacidosis, which was an early symptom that would eventually lead to her death. Ketoacidosis in Netta's blood may have caused her jewelry to become tarnished, Diabetes could also explain her erratic behavior and also been the true cause of her death. In truth, though, we'll never know for certain what caused Netta Fernario's death. But one thing we can know for sure is that there really are dark forces out there in the world you don't want to mess with, and some mysteries that will remain forever unsolved. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale and entirely fictional identity. Thanks again for listening, and thanks for sticking with me during this difficult period in my life. I so deeply appreciate it. I'd like to thank my latest Patreon supporters for signing up and supporting the show. Thank you to Steven, Nia, T, Lynn, Lucy, Arthena, David, Stephanie, Ashley, Dave, Daniel, Rebecca, and Chris. You're all amazing, and so are all my other patrons as well. Just a reminder, the patrons of the show get access to all sorts of bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our exclusive bonus mini-episodes. If you're interested in becoming a patron, I'll put a link in the show notes. Another great way you can help support the show is to subscribe, rate, and review The Conspirators on Apple Podcasts. And if you like what you're hearing, leave us a five-star review. Each one of your ratings and reviews helps boost us in Apple's rankings 
and help spread the good word to more people. If you're not on Apple, not to worry, we're also on Stitcher, Spotify, and most of the other places you get your podcasts. Feel free to reach out to us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Or you can even send us a good old-fashioned email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com. I've really enjoyed hearing from so many of you and all your well wishes, and it helps make me feel so much better. Thanks again to all of you for listening, and I hope you'll be back next time.